And so people flock to Rome. I want to go see the sacred sites where the martyrs died for Christianity. It's like, well, just go to Ohio, go to Indiana, right? That's where Joseph died in the White River Valley there. Walk outside your front door. Do you ever feel like we're wandering between two worlds? Modernity as we knew it is passing away and the next world is yet to be born. Like Dante, we're in a dark wood, struggling to know how to think and how to live. Virgil guided Dante with the light of natural reason. Then Beatrice illuminated the path to paradise with Christian revelation. Welcome to the Beatrice Institute podcast, where Christian faith and reason illuminate the best of academic thinking and research. How should we think and live in this time between worlds? At Beatrice Institute, we take our bearings from the beautiful, the good, and the true. I'm Ryan McDermott. I direct Beatrice Institute's Genealogies of Modernity initiative. What does it mean to be modern? Where did we come from, and what comes next? Let's chat. Hey friends, just a bit of an update here. This episode is coming to you a week late. We've had a member of the editorial staff has had to take some time away, trying to keep to our schedule from here on out, but we'll see. Thanks for your patience if we have to switch things up a bit. Also, this conversation with Matthew Milliner of Wheaton College just went so well. We usually try to keep these conversations to about an hour. Matt and I ended up talking for over two hours. There's just so much that we've both been working on that have a lot in common. And so we decided to split it up into two episodes. Even after cutting and rearranging some stuff, we got two full episodes here. So this is the first part of my conversation with Matthew Milner. The second part will follow up in the next episode two weeks from now. All right. Enjoy. My guest today is Matthew Milliner. He teaches art history at his alma mater, Wheaton College, near Chicago. Matt specializes in Byzantine and medieval art, but we'll hear in this conversation how that explodes and amplifies to include the rest of the cosmos. He's a five-time appointee to the Curatorial Advisory Board of the United States Senate and a winner of Redeemer University's Emerging Public Intellectual Award. He's written for publications ranging from the New York Times to First Things. He was awarded a Commonwealth Fellowship at the Institute for Advanced Studies and Culture at the University of Virginia to complete his forthcoming book, Mother of the Lamb, coming out with Fortress Press soon. I just saw the proofs on his desk. And he's the author, most recently, of The Everlasting People, G.K. Chesterton and the First Nations with InterVarsity Press. Matt also tends to one of my favorite Instagram feeds, which teaches me to look at my surroundings with a kind of archaeological vision. And so, Matt, I've actually never been to Wheaton College. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Yeah, let's say you're taking me on a tour. Where does the tour start? And then tell me what we're looking at. And then start digging down through the historical layers and tell me what you would see in one of your archaeological Instagram posts. I think, well, it would start where yours should start. Well, I'm sure it does at the Meadowcroft Rock Shelter, right? Because you've got 15,000 years of indigenous history right near you in Pittsburgh. And so we have an equivalent of that, which is Perimastodon. We call this Mastodon. And my wife jokes it should be called Katy Perimastodon because this beast is, is actually female. 
And so this is evidence of the human habitation in this area that goes back about 11,000 years ago uh, when the glaciers were receding and the, what we know as the Great Lakes is simply meltwater from that great curtain rising on the drama of human history that we are all part of who live in, in this Midwestern region. So is this a, a stuffed mastodon? No, no, it's a real skeleton of a mastodon oh, that was skeleton. found. And so it has like some fake skin put on one side of it, like, um, you know, sculptural evocation of what it was once like. But the um, but it's these are real bones. And so they're beautifully displayed. And talk about a spear in the heart of a young earth creationism, which still sometimes rears its head around here. And, and it just forces one to grapple, you know, in a, in a minority report. And of course, you know, I, I would defend the freedom of people to hold that opinion, but I also am going to do my best to smoke it out of my students as I force them to grapple with not only an 11,000 year old evidence for human hunting in this area, but actually 15,000, because when the Clovis dates were eradicated because of finds like the Meta Croft Rock Shelter, the Miller Point that was discovered there, that another one of the main sites is just north of us in Milwaukee, where there was a human markings found on a mammoth bone in this case that clearly goes back 15,000 years. And so it's just so richly exciting. So that's where the tour would begin. I would say, okay, and we're a Christian college. And so we're not ashamed of that. We don't kind of hide that. We kind of like it. We let our freak flag fly. And I would say, you know, you got to ask yourself, what does this Christ that who we profess here on this campus, what does he have to do with the people that were here? And, and if a student doesn't have an answer to that question, they better start thinking of one. And I think the answer to that is you kind of open up into this rich understanding of the one through whom all things were made, the cosmic Christ who has been present at all times to all people in all places. And you just open up into that. And then you have a faith that can endure. And then if the tour were to continue, I would then say, all right, do you have time? Let's do a quick drive. And we drive over to the what are called the Winfield Mounds. I prefer to refer to them as DU-33, which is their archaeological designation. These are mounds that go back to the time of origin of Alexandria, Gregory of Nyssa right? And there were humans in this area, right? And it's like, not a lot of places can say that. It's like, all right, we got one. And it's like, well, why are they called the Winfield Mounds? Well, it's kind of disappointing, isn't it, that we slapped a name on those mounds of the man who both supervised the Black Hawk War and the Trail of Tears under Andrew Jackson's command. So it is, uh, you know, we need to change that. But nevertheless, I want to say, what about those people? What do those mounds testify to? Well, it's a pregnant earth that is testifying to the hope and the resurrection. Oh, and now you're projecting your Christian faith onto the people of old. No, I'm not. I'm intuiting what they're doing. I've done my research. I'm reading that this is a hope in a renewal of the earth. That's why the effigy mounds were created. That's why the Hopewell mounds were created. If death is just natural, why not just throw a body into a ditch and say, good, let's move on. No, there's mourning, there's sadness, there's expectation of renewal. And so you might say maybe Christianity should have been interacting with Africans from Egypt and indigenous people from North America instead of just the Platonists in order to have conversation partners that were more amenable to the belief in the physical resurrection. Right. We just recently read Gregory of Nyssa and Macrina's dialogue about the resurrection in the Beatrice Institute undergraduate seminar, and they really have a hard time admitting to the bodily resurrection. They just, it's, they can barely get there. 
It's one of the hard ones. And I think it's, it wasn't hard for most human cultures. It just was so happened to be hard for the Greeks that we've been so shaped by, right? Dionysus is the only one who sticks around. Everyone else laughs in Acts 17 when Paul brings up the resurrection. Like, get, oh, get out of here. We're not interested. And that's why Dionysus the Areopagite is such an important figure. At least he held on. He, he overcame his own Platonism by receiving the gospel of Paul. I know it's a pseudonym. I get it. But nevertheless, that, that inheritance is there. But yes, that's why if you, you know, when you read Macrina and Gregory, of course, she's the smart one. And Gregory says that and church history never took him at his word. <laughs> he said, no, no, it's all, it's all Basil, Gregory, and Gregory. Those are the, no, they're saying it's, it's her. She's the smart one. Anyway, but right. It's like we read that and we say it should thrust us into conversation with non-European cultures to help us. I mean, Egypt alone would do it for you, right? Egypt alone with its pyramids is, is already proclaiming this need for resurrection. For goodness sakes, the terracotta army, right, in China is also saying, I want, and you know, granted, it's a militarized form of the resurrection, and it's certainly only for the elite, whereas Christianity would democratize it and say it's for everybody. But even so, that what that tomb is, is saying, we want more, right? This can't be enough. So what more natural partner could there be to indigenous societies who take burial with such reverence than a faith that presumes to believe in resurrection? So, yeah. Let me ask you a question I asked Brad Gregory a few weeks ago. It's probable that humans have been around for 100,000 years and recent evidence might even take that back to 400,000 years. What does that long durée of humanity do to our understanding of the God's choosing the people Israel? I think it only makes it more exciting. It only increases the drama of the narrative. It's like listening to a symphony and there was a whole another room of instruments you didn't know about that all of a sudden pick up with the same tune. And what is that tune, you ask, right? The tune is Matthew 25, right? His deep cosmic identity with those who are the least of these. So Christ has always been not with the Paleolithic man conquering, but the secret is he has always been with the conquered. He enters the food chain on the lower end. He has not been with imperial conquest, whether it's Napoleon or the Neanderthals, right, conquering those who preceded them. He has always been mysteriously present as the lamb because, last time I checked, he's the lamb slain from the foundation of the world, right? <laughs> it's like Revelation. So I cannot overstate how little of a problem that is for this understanding because it's everyone's like, oh, I got you now. <laughs> it's like, no, that's actually deeply enriching to think of this one. I mean, every human, every human is a, a Christological prophecy if they're born before Christ or a Christological confirmation if they came after. And what I simply mean by that, it's not some domineering triumphalist Christianity that's going to conquer everything because that would betray the message itself. What I mean by that is that it's just, that's how good it means to be human. That's how good it is to be human, that the untethered infinite bliss and power would take on that form as well. And when he does take on that form, he is confirming the lesson that he had taught to the chosen people of Israel all along, that they were not chosen because they were the true conquerors. They were not chosen because they were the handsomest or the most beautiful or the, or the most capable of wielding weapons of power. 
They were chosen because of their humility, because uh, their being chosen would most clearly indicate that it was not in their power, but it was by grace. And so I just see it as seamless, right? It, it is seamless with the great history that has come before. And you might say, but what about all the conquering that Israel does, right? What do you mean? They do that, but what immediately happens in the Hebrew Bible, you then have, okay, now let me show you what it's like to be conquered by the Assyrians and the Babylonians, and then my true revelation is going to emerge from that reality. And then all of a sudden, that imprint is cast on to the thousands of years that came before. So again, I find it richly exciting. One of my pet peeves is people, I mean, really, it really bugs me, people who kind of a casual dismissal of Pierre Teilhard de Chardin, just kind of throwing it in in a book, like, oh yeah, well, we know that guy's... It's like, no, you don't know that that guy (laughs) is not to be attended to. I've read really good critiques of Pierre. You don't have to agree with him. But at the same time, he had already, in some senses, deposited the richness of this vision into new wineskins that can account for this evidence. And so if other wineskins are falling apart, I'm just, I'm like, I've moved, right? I, I've already moved into this, this richer understanding. Again, I don't agree with him in its entirety, but to absurdly declare that he is somehow less than cruciform betrays an immediate exposure that you haven't read Henri de Lubac's profound defenses of Pierre Teilhard de Chardin against those who decried him as a heretic in his day. And I love it. He just, he took it, right? He never insisted upon He's like, okay, fine. You want me to be silent? Right? He didn't wear it like a badge of honor as people so often do today. Oh, look at me. I'm a heretic. Yay. Now I'm going to start my institute in California. No, he said, all right. And that's why he's so, in some senses, I think emerges as such a trustworthy human being. And so what we've got is like a, a new big history that's coming along. And one of the things that bores me, forgive me, um, about some of the, uh, not all, but some of the literature that attends to this new evidence is it's just complete refusal to account for the embrace of Christianity by indigenous people. And I mean, I, I think that it's often sometimes people's whiteness that, if I may throw around that often ill-thrown-around term, that keeps them from addressing that because they prefer the exotic, the other, and to see Christianity amongst these people that they're trying to say, oh, gosh, they must have been duped by the white. No, sorry. They get to pick that for themselves. Thank you very much. That's not your choice. You let them speak on their own terms. And they're the ones often that are pointing to this profound, rich history that they see that the confirmation of the crucified and risen one as something that confirms the, the rock art and the archaeological discoveries that go back so many thousands of years in this on this continent, on Turtle Island. Yeah, I've got, I have a little example of that that I prepared. Oh, please, please deliver. This is from the Dawn of Everything, the book that I keep flogging on this podcast. But as you mentioned in another conversation, we could find similar material in Paulette Steves. What's, what's the name of that book? The Indigenous Paleolithic. And she cites both the Metacroft Rock Shelter and Perry Mastodon at Wheaton College in her early maps. It's so wonderful. Well, so they bring up a quote from Brother Gabriel Sagar, a recollect friar who was in New France in the 1620s among the Wendat people otherwise known as the Huron. And he started out really critical of Wendat life, but then eventually he completely reversed his position and writes that among the Wendat, they have no lawsuits and take little pains to acquire the goods of this life. 
for which we Christians torment ourselves so much. And for our excessive and insatiable greed in acquiring them, we are justly and with reason reproved by their quiet life and tranquil dispositions. Much like Biard's Micmac, which a previous Jesuit missionary encountered, the Wendat were particularly offended by the French lack of generosity to one another. He goes on, they reciprocate hospitality and give such assistance to one another that the necessities of all are provided for without there being any indigent beggar in their towns and villages. And they considered it a very bad thing when they heard it said that there were in France a great many of these needy beggars and thought that this was for lack of charity in us and blamed us for it severely. What a description of an Acts 2 society that is primed to receive a gospel that's not a revolutionary gospel for them, but one that I would imagine came very easily, at least to those communities. So one of the things I wanted to ask you about is what was the evangelistic approach of the Moravians or people like David Brainerd, that the successful early missionaries? Well, and I think what's interesting, we don't even have to go to them. Um, we can start just with the Wanda, with the Huron, with the Mi'kmaq, right, in, in this area that was just referred to. I mean, it's all been written, right? And so what's interesting about the Recollects and about that quote is they're often cast as the ones who are particularly have an animosity toward the indigenous life in comparison to the Jesuits. And it's so interesting to hear a Recollect priest make that point. But one of the Recollect priests that I mention in this book who is working amongst the Mi'kmaq, he's really annoyed. And I was astonished to discover this. Why is he annoyed? Because he's in the 17th century and he's given his life to bring Christianity to the Mi'kmaq. And they're like, yeah, uh, we, we've been waiting for you. We had two crosses. You brought the third. And he's like, no, 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 no. No, I'm bringing the gospel to you. They're like, no, 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 no. Let me show you the petroglyphs. Here's the rock carvings that show that we were awaiting this. And this really throws kind of your secular historicist for a loop. They meant, well, uh, clearly that must be Christian retrojection into the Mi'kmaq records because no one, no, of course, you could never have a cross prophecy that is fulfilled in Christianity. It's just ruled out. And I'm like, well, why are you ruling that out? Maybe it's the case. I first learned of this, and, and then I confirmed it by discovering this recollect frustration that he was not the first in a secular Canadian anthropology textbook where this, um, that's like assigned, you know, just standard university courses where an anthropologist is doing her research. And she said, well, tell me about your Catholic faith as, as a Mi'kmaq woman. And she says, well, again, our culture has always preached the cross. And when Christianity came, we knew the final details. And again, they use the petroglyphs and you can find the early rubbings of the rocks in Nova Scotia. You can go visit them. I've seen some of them myself. You can find them. And you might say like, well, yeah, but that's just kind of an anthropological quirk. No, it's on their flag of the Mi'kmaq nation. And you might say, well, yeah, but are they Christian today? I mean, how much time do you have? Like Terry LeBlanc is a friend of mine. He's a Mi'kmaq indigenous Christian. And he said, uh, you know what? Yeah, you want to bring your European theological conversations. Yeah, we've been having a conversation about Christianity and indigenous culture for 400 years. It started at Port Royal, Nova Scotia. So glad you jumped in, but we don't really need your help. We need you to listen. And it's like, see, once you have those experiences, you're just like, and again, I would go further. It's not just 400 years old. It's maybe 400,000. I must say, I did not know about the 400 thousand number. I knew about the 100,000 from Paulette Steves based upon 
the California discoveries, which seems pretty clear. You have some intelligent human arrangement of these (laughs) mammoth bones in the San Diego area that may very well go that far back. It's been explosively controversial. I'd be interested, please, you know, after send me your 400,000 sources. But again, it doesn't disturb me, but it's like all of it. You've got to expand your mind if you are a Christian and you know, one has to expand their minds. But I'm saying if, if you want, if you want to be in conversation with this material, you have to have a cosmic sense of Christ, which, of course, Gregor of Ness and Macrina naturally had. And it's just that this constricted, brittle, modern, historicist understanding of Jesus, it's just not going to be able to handle this material. And some people get afraid at that and they say, oh, are you giving up on a literal understanding? Not in the least. I never have to make that choice between the literal, the allegorical, the tropological, as you've, of course, written so beautifully about, and the anagogical. All of them can be in play at once. Well, and also, if we feel like a 400,000-year human history belittles the history in which God has revealed himself through a chosen people— All we have to do is balance that out by adding another 398,000 years on the other end in the future. There it is. (laughs) I love it. I love it. Well said. You know, it's funny, like people, some, you know, some of this was popularized in Richard Rohr's book, The Universal Christ. And, you know, and I saw people just kind of, Rohr's a gifted pastor, a truly almost brilliant pastor, and not a very good, he's a sloppy theologian. And so what happened was people kind of, uh, you know, some professional academics would kind of criticize it's kind of sloppy, it's not well thought through. But there's a lot more sophisticated people that make the distinction between Jesus and Christ, not to separate them, but to just for, for an intelligent utilitarian purposes, to employ them to make the kind of moves we're making. Let's distinguish between Jesus and Christ, uh, knowing that they'll immediately come back together again. And the Christ is that cosmic sense. And I only mention it because... I don't think Rohr cites him, but it's Raymond Panikar, the great Spanish theologian, who has such wonderful interactions between Catholicism and Hinduism, but really, you know, doubling down on his Christian faith as he does so. The Unknown Christ of Hinduism is a great book. And his Gifford lectures are really fantastic. And he's the one who makes the distinction between Christ and Jesus. Not, again, to separate them, but to say what we're talking about, the one who was present to the indigenous people when they mysteriously suffered and who the flickering eyes of the man you were about to kill who looked at you with forgiveness. That was Christ, right? Even if it happened in an anonymous glade, you know, somewhere in the mists of indigenous prehistory, right? That was Christ. And now, and then of course, on Christmas, we learn his name is Jesus, right? But there's a perfect fusion, a Chalcedonian unity between those two entities. I mean, that's just good Christology, right? And so I think that what we're seeing here, the heresy, not that, you know, I don't know if people listening to this podcast, could, you know, they may not care less about heresy, but in my community, it matters, right? And I, and I think it should. But the heresy doubles back on the people who wouldn't make these moves, in my opinion. Oh, so you're saying he wasn't present to the 1,000, 100,000 years of human history? Now, that's kind of problematic, right? Shouldn't you be the one that's defending yourself rather than saying that I'm too adventures of a thinker to say that Christ has always been present with these people, right? I love the way that Stratford Caldecott puts it. This is a keeper of a quote. (laughs) He has this great article on the differences between Christian and Hindu non-duality. And he said, the one 
who all religions know, the one who all religions know, and that would include Paleolithic religious observances, like Pleistocene religious observances, reveals himself in Christianity to have a triune interior life. <laughs> it's like, there we go. Right? It's like, yes, yes, yes. I mean, that's progress, right? I think to use that overused term, that's um, a clarity of revelation. God wants to reveal this infinite bliss that he has always participated in, not as a lover, but as love itself. And so that there were glimmers of that before Christmas is not surprising. And of course, the chief glimmer, which is more than a glimmer, is the people of Israel. What did you learn from Peter Brown about looking at images or architecture? Generosity. When my friend David Michelson first came to Princeton. He was kind of shopping grad schools, decide, making his final decision. He went to Peter's house and Peter had taken a Sotheby's catalog of Oriental carpets and had cut them all out and had created a model of the great mosque of Damascus in his home. Not to show to anyone, it just David sort of stumbled upon it accidentally. And that's how he did history. And we all know that his loving turn of phrase... <laughs> all comes from that exceeding generosity to let the past be the past. And by letting the past be the past, it breaks into the present. So there was sort of, I, I like to use the word, the canopy that Peter erected under which so many people came, Christian, non-Christian, Muslim, non-Muslim, right? Uh, secular. I mean, but I think the distinguishing characteristic of the, the flock that was gathered together under that patronage, including my advisor, Danny Churchich, who has since died, was a generosity of spirit. And it was, you know, I'm not going to longingly look back and say, oh, the good old days. I don't know if it continues. It may. I haven't, you know, I was back at Princeton ever so briefly. I'm not sure. Jack Tanuse is an incredible scholar who, who carries that spirit onward. But I will simply say, I mean, he's at Princeton now in, in Peter's position. <laughs> he's brilliant. <laughs> I mean, my goodness. And I think I simply mean to say that that, that was the spirit in which these kind of reflections took place. And so, yeah, it was kind of wonderful. How has the student experience at Wheaton College changed since you were an undergraduate? Oh, gosh, students are, are struggling, right? We know why, right? It's because of these machines we put in their pockets since they were but babes. And so that's all the data seems to point in that direction. I get it from Twenge, her scholarship that is drawn upon in Lukianoff and Heights, The Coddling of the American Mind, which is a really good book. But it's just, it really is, students are struggling. And so, but what you see at Wheaton are those same struggles, that mental health crisis of sorts that we did a pretty good job exacerbating through COVID. <laughs> it's just, it's been bad, right? I'm not saying anyone's to blame, but it's been ugly. But what you see instead at Wheaton is that when the human soul is pinched in that way or, or put in a corner, there's this immediate recourse to their, their Christian faith. And it becomes serious. You know, we have the same crises that we have on other campuses. You know, we've had students killed, horrible accidents. We've had it's just, I won't go into it, but what you see when that same crisis happens is a, a, we have the valve of community lamentation, which can be public. And, you know, there's messiness that comes from that. To give you a sense of what our, I like to talk about the Lenten miracle. So about 10 years ago, so when I went to Mount Athos, these monks kind of forced me to pillage the gift shop and take all these 
icons back with me, these replica icons. And it was one of my trips there. And, and so I was like, all right, I count that as permission. All right, I can use these. And so I got some more rigorous replications and have created them, created essentially sacred space in my art history lecture hall. And so slowly the icons have multiplied over time. And now we get the incense going, we get the candle going, right? We've got the Sinai Christ there in the middle. We've got a black Christ, an indigenous Christ as well, right? Not because we're being politically correct, because it's Christologically correct, because of the universe, the, the totus Christus, right? So we just started hosting morning and evening prayer sessions. And the Lenten miracle is that you're completely volunteer, okay? There's no, I'm not going to give you an uptick on your class grade. I emphasize that with great profundity. And they have required chapel, so, so they know what mandatory prayer is like. But I have never been alone, never been alone. And sometimes I've wanted to be. <laughs> I'm tired. I'm at the end of a long day, but I just set up these morning and evening half hour prayer sessions using Cranmer's gorgeous services and they just keep showing up, right? So we've prayed through Sandy Hook. We've prayed through now the war. We've prayed through all kinds of shootings and we have this liturgy that we just appeal to. And I constantly say to students in our art history lecture, I'm like, they don't have to come to the prayer, but they'll, they'll come to class right afterwards. And it'll smell like incense and, and they like that. And I'm like, look, there's no, you know, when I say this, I'm not saying you should have been there. I'm just saying, know that these icons were just used and that art history can't account for that, <laughs> right? It breaks the glass of the discipline. It shatters. It's like, we need art historians to come in and study us because we just stepped into the light and we weren't looking at it, standing alongside of it, to use Lewis's famous metaphor. So yeah, everything's the same in the sense of the challenges, the struggles, the demographic freefall that we're all suffering from. But at the same time, everything's completely different because we can be frank in those appeals. And oh God, and people, oh, I wonder if they deal with the real issues there. Oh my gosh, we deal with real issues. Like our conversations about race are heated. They are intense and wonderful and agonizing, and they're full-throated. But what makes the difference is that I can appeal to the lost Nubian frescoes from Faras Cathedral in what is now the Sudan that were submerged by the Aswan High Dam and rescued, thankfully, by the Poles. And some are at Warsaw and some are in Khartoum. And I can point to those and say, the universal body of Christ, that's part of the story. I can appeal not to the European foundation of Christian learning. I, I always first appeal to Alexandria. That's where the Christian liberal arts project began. Catherine of Alexandria is our patron saint of sorts, right? So it's like, again, so we have the race conversations, but I mean, at Whedon, if, if you say we have like, we have boundaries, that's like a, just a good football game. It's got a boundary, right? Our boundary would be like, if someone says, oh, that Gen I mean, Galatians is ridiculous when it says there's neither slave nor Greek nor male nor female, that's just ridiculous. It's like, well, you just stepped outside the boundary. I'm not going to punish the student, but it's like they lose, right? It's like, no, you can't say it's ridiculous, right? That's a liberating insight because it's in the New Testament and that's our common text. And so it's so wonderful to be able to go to that. Does it mean that there aren't great hermeneutical debates we have about the Bible? Of course not. But it's taken as a given. And therefore, the multitude of peoples 
that the New Testament in this Pentecostal insight unfurls is our default for what diversity looks like, not some new political headwinds that we're trying to accommodate ourselves to. We have that to go to. And say, ah, but we know history. They, ha- they haven't done it properly. Of course we haven't done it properly because there were other headwinds that we unfortunately succumbed to in part of our history. But for goodness sakes, we're an abolitionist school. And we all know that the university... <laughs> that the University of Virginia would give half of its endowment for that. (laughs) And it's not for sale. (laughs) Because I've been to the slavery memorial at the University of Virginia, and it's harrowing, and they got to deal with that. Do we have stuff to deal with too? Yes, we do, especially in regard to indigenous history. We got stuff to deal with. But we've got abolitionism in our history, and it's kind of wonderful. Gosh, I was at William & Mary, and it's like construction site, all right, we're doing what we can because we know what happened here and we're trying to fix it. And it's like, ooh, I feel for them. I'm glad they're doing the work. They were built by slaves. And you've got to reckon with that. What's the best recontextualization of an American monument that you've come across in these terms? Interesting question. I was told that in Charlottesville that the Jackson and Lee statues, when I was there, it was a fresh enough kill <laughs> that you could pick up pieces. And I have pieces, not because I endorse the statues. I'm glad they were taken down. I don't endorse them any more than someone endorses communism as a piece of the Berlin Wall, which they also have at the University of Virginia campus. But I was told that they're going to melt them down and recreate uh, beautiful statues. So that's one. But the answer to the question is as follows. It's enrichment. And as you drive through Richmond, and Jay Tolson told me about this while I was there, and he's like, you got, he, the editor at the Hedgehog, he's like, you got to go to this. And I did. And it was awesome because you're driving through Richmond and you just see all these decapitated edifices, these just huge plinths with nothing on them. And frankly, it's ugly. And so it's like, all right, this is the beauty of the South has been destroyed. You might say it wasn't beautiful because it was built to subjugate the African-American population. True. It wasn't just, but in some senses it was beautiful, and now it's gone. And then you keep driving, and you find Kahinda Wiley's equestrian statue of an African-American man, proud and astride, and that is beautiful and just. So that's the best one I know of. It was exhibited in Manhattan for a while, right in Central Park, and now it's found its permanent home as a response to the equestrian statues that have been removed, and it's a great statue. And Kahinda Wiley, he's an ironic spirit. In the dedication to that monument, he's like, I am not here to cancel your history. I am not here to shut you down. I am here to celebrate what has not been celebrated. Beautiful, beautiful. So that's that's a successful contextualization. That's what I like to call the Douglas option from Frederick Douglass. That's what he argued for. He's like, don't tear the Lincoln statue down, even if it's a bit problematic. Let's have a contextualizing beautiful statue nearby. And um, but uh, quick story. <laughs> I was once, it's not often that our historian gets contacted by the police, but uh, I had a detective call me once and I was freaked out. I'm like, did, I'm like, did a student die? Like what's going on? I get the message on my phone. I called him. He's like, Oh, you've been impersonated. Someone is claiming to gather who claims to be you is going to come rip down the Doughboy statue of Memorial to World War I in Wheaton with a bunch of angry students because it represents imperialism. And the reason I contacted you is just to let you know, we were sure it wasn't you when they spelled your name wrong. 
But times are so tense right now, this was summer 2020, that to even try to argue for that nuance, which I tried to in a podcast and someone listened to it and said, all right, this guy's some crazy statue ripper downer, right? So it's weird. It's a weird time. But anyway, so that you definitely can Wiley is, is number one for me. That's that equestrian statue. Can you just tell the story of Nodenhuten? So the Moravians amongst the Lenape that you talked about, I mean, it really is interesting. Like I just found this new book called Zinzendorf and an Ecumenical Theology of the Heart. Like he's so ahead of the curve. Like he just realizes that this fractured Christenda is, is not working and therefore the heart piety is going to be the way forward. And that's sometimes mocked in the history of evangelicalism as substandard or unintellectual. But really, I think it's the answer in many ways. That's the kind of mysticism that Valentin Weigel and others kept alive in the midst of the, the divisive wars between Catholics and Protestants. So the point is, there's an entire history of, of ecumenical heart mysticism that one could easily write. In some senses, it has been written. So Zinzendorf emerges as, as a prophet of this kind and alongside of William Penn, he was incredibly successful in his interactions, the Moravians. And these are the people, of course, that caused Wesley's heart to be warm. So it's at the heart of evangelicalism on this continent. Of course, people are like, no, 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 that's not even. I'm like, well, do your homework, go deeper. When I say evangelical, I'm talking about Lenape Indians. What are you talking about? Some nationalist, right? No, I'm talking about the real, rich, serious history of it. And I've done my homework and you should too, right? Let's thicken this account. Nevertheless, Moravians were successful amongst the Lenape because their wound mysticism, I'm not kidding, like Barbara Newman's wonderful work on the adventurous spirituality of the Middle Ages, and of course she's a hero of mine, is wonderful. And all the medievalists that explore the heart wound piety, entering into the wound of Christ, oh, the audacious Middle Ages, they were so wild. Well, the Moravians were doing it too. In fact, it was a little crazier because they would like camp out in the wound of Jesus and like <laughs> build their living room inside. I just live it in the wound. <laughs> and it's like, they, and it's like, well, but did they make pictures? Yes, they did. Many. You can find them. <laughs> They're pretty awesome. And so needless to say, this wound piety and this deep bloody heart mysticism appealed to the Lenape. And they received the gospel under these conditions, and it did nothing to alter the tide of settler colonialism. Nothing at all. This is the, the tragedy of Brotherton Indians. Any brother town throughout the Northeast is like, all right, we're Christian. Please don't kill us. Uh, we're going to kill you. <laughs> it's like, but we're brother. No, sorry. That, that's what I'm sorry. I don't mean to laugh. It's just it did nothing which indicates to me that it's more than Christianity at work if it did nothing, right? If it was all Christianity, then you convert. That would have been the end of it. You can stay, but we're dealing with forces that far transcend Christian mechanisms. It's hostage Christianity, falsely so-called, that is in the wake of settlement. That's what my book is about. So anyway, so the Lenape convert, the Moravian Lenape, and they get get getting pushed further and further. And once they get to Nottenhutten, the Pittsburgh, not it's the Pennsylvania militia, they're deciding what to do with this 200 or so Indians who are Christian Lenape because they're not sure if they had secretly sided with the British. 
And so it's deemed expedient to kill them lest they, I mean, they were women and children, right? That's primarily who they were. And they said, well, no, we better just kill them. And so it wasn't a heat of passion of in battle. No, it was premeditated. It was thought through. And so they said, okay, you can have the night for prayer. And so during the night for prayer, they sang hymns to Jesus. And then in the morning, they were hacked to death systematically. And you can visit the place to this day. There's a little burial mound and there's an obelisk that was erected on one of the anniversaries. And it's relatively unknown. And this happened. And you might say, well, then they must have given up Christianity for good, right? Because they see how much of a sham it is. No, one of them, and Rachel Wheeler has done her academic work in this area of this extraordinary research. One of them who was not um, himself Lenape, but he was, I think, Stockbridge Indian, and he was caught up with them. His name was Joseph. We know his name. And he was not there at Gnadenhuden. He was away, but his family was killed. And does he surrender his Christian faith? No. But because of that, he is then blamed by his fellow Lenape for being insufficiently Lenape. And they hack him to pieces. So he's a martyr. And he they throw him onto the fire and he he's burned and he dies. But he held on to his Christian faith to the end. And so people flock to Rome. I want to go see the sacred sites where the martyrs died for Christianity. It's like, well, just go to Ohio, go to Indiana, right? That's where Joseph died in the White River Valley there. You know, walk outside your front door. And that's, that's that. I mean, again, oh my gosh, it's just harrowing. And we could go on with that story. It just keeps going. Well, and I mean, it keeps going to the point that there are still Stockbridge, Muncie, Mohican Christians, right, living today. Of course. And they're on there in they're Wisconsin, they're in, they're in uh, Ontario. I've visited many of them. And so are they the ones who kept the memory alive of this ancestor, Joshua, who was martyred by his own people? I think these are not only indigenous accounts. These are settler accounts who are horrified that this happened. I mean, just like today, like if that happens, you're not going to say like, yeah, I got those. It's like serious Christians are like stunned by this. Now I'd have to comb Rachel Wheeler's sources and see where she got this, but it's astonishing that we know the name of this guy. Just going back to the Nodenhuten massacre, were there any Christian responses to that? That, you know, any, any genuine Christian responses to this Christian slaughter of Christians? There were, and that's why the obelisk is important. So the obelisk that's there is on one of the anniversaries. And the Moravians, who are still vibrant in that area, because when I visited it, I easily could have gone. I had, you know, the kids in the hotel and it just wouldn't have worked. But I could, I really wanted to go to a Moravian church service and I could have. I had multiple options. So the Moravians are still doing their thing. And they have actually a play called Trumpet in the Land that happens in that area, which you can go to in the summer. And I went to it that commemorates the awfulness of this encounter and Zinzendorf amongst the Lenape. Now, granted, the play's a little troubling because it's just, it's a little dated because you have these non-Indigenous people dressed up as Indians and it was... Trumpet of the Land was kind of a Pulitzer Prize. I don't know. It won a big award, but it was made 50 years ago. It's not au courant, right? And I think that's, it's kind of like, um, yeah, it's, it's troubling. So I was a little, uh, I'm like, uh, it's a little cringy. <laughs> but, but it used to be performed by some tribal members who were, who were involved in that. Not my favorite way it's commemorated, but it's a regional living memory. And that's the thing. We, we academic people, we live in our little centers. And if it hasn't come to me, right, it's not real. And then you go visit the place. You're like, oh, it's just living for them. They know where they live. Not all of them, right? You go to Newark, Ohio, and you're just like, people have just no clue that they're in, 
they live, I mean, many of the people there have no clue that they live in the largest complex of earthworks in the world, right? I mean, it's just the Hopewell people there created these true fulfillments, you know, of heaven and earth unifying, right? In touch with the stars, earth, these are calendars. And uh, so it is sad, but it, and in the case of Gnadenhutten, it seems in my experience to be a living active memory. I did want to ask one other question if you have time. Please. And take this however you want. Why are you still an Anglican? Oh, oh, the great question. It's in the book. It's in, I mean, here's the thing. When someone asks, why did you convert to Catholicism? It's fair to say, well, that's a long conversation. And I think it's also fair to say when someone asks, why are you not converting to Catholicism? That's also a long conversation. And so when I say it's in the book, I mean that it's both in this in the sense of the tragedy of Christian disunity that I can't fix with my personal decision. I mean, what happened in Florida that I mentioned here, that needs to be reckoned with. I mean, that's the aboriginal, no pun intended, Girardian murder that begins mission conquest in this land. And so I would love to try to rectify that with a personal decision, but it won't be rectified. But the longer answer to that question is embedded in, in the, the Mother of the Lamb, the Virgin of the Passion book, because I really wrestle with some of the, the history. And so, especially in regard to the Virgin is Priest stuff that we were talking about. And so I have a coherent, beautiful, nourishing Christian community here at Wheaton that is Anglican. If I did not you know, my wife and I think like, what, you know, what would it be if we were not in that situation? I could completely conceive of a context in which I might find myself to be Orthodox or Catholic. I do not consider it a faithless decision or some kind of cop-out necessarily, but it is where I am called right now. And what's so fascinating about this scholarship, I like to point out that, you know, Bernard McGinn earlier in his career said, as everyone used to say, that Protestants don't have mysticism. And that has just been obliterated by Bernard McGinn, right? He, he didn't end the series of the history of mysticism. He's doing two volumes, one of which is complete, on Protestants and mysticism. And so I think if one, in order to encounter those depths, those Eckhartian reservoirs, right? If one finds oneself needing to convert to Catholicism to access those depths, fine. However, I have found that there are as many Protestants, whether it be Weigel or Treherne or Casper or in particular, of course, Herbert, Dunn, etc., that are doing all that work, that are bringing that forward, the Moravians, no less, with their sacred heart mysticism. Cannot that be accounted for as well? And so again, you know, it's one of those things where I want to from this side of the aisle, plumb the same resources, mine the same ore that people would be mining on the other side. And the thing that I'm really, if I'm against anything, it's these kind of slapdash declarations of this, you know, here's the answer. What I do with, not that I'm a relativist, right? What I do in class until I hurt my hand. So I had to stop doing it. But I take a plate and I smash it on the ground. And then I pick up one large piece of the plate and I say, the church isn't broken. This plate is not broken. Does it look cracked to you? No, it's not broken. Well, tell that to the indigenous people in Florida, you know, who saw the murder of all of the Calvinist missionaries who had come to that fort and that were, you know, killed as Lutherans in front of the indigenous people, right? It's like, that's, and so in some senses, plumbing these questions kind of gets you out of these inter-European conversations. You know, another 
avenue of access to that is just to really look at the spirituality and to look at the reform movement of the Viterbo reformers in Rome. Um, of course, they weren't in Rome. They had to go to Viterbo because they were pursued. And you just realize, oh my gosh, we were one vote away from Reginald Pole becoming Pope, right? And then Carafa took the reins and, and crushed it all. And you had what is clearly a message of, of coherent justification by faith in all these reform circles. And then they started to be mercilessly persecuted. And so it's just like part of it is, is wanting to lament that and not picking the right team so that, you know, I can find myself settled. Not that it's necessarily wrong to do that. And I'm not saying that someone who does convert is necessarily in a facile way picking a team. It might be a genuine calling. And I have no doubt that it's a calling that some people have, but it is not mine right now. It's a really interesting place to be. That's a wonderful answer. And it, it speaks. Ah, it's, I mean, it's, we're just getting started. We're just getting started. I think it would be a much longer conversation. Yeah, I think, I mean, just, just the way that you, you speak to the woundedness of the whole church, I think is really, I'm Roman Catholic. My wife and I raised our kids Roman Catholic, but one I, of their I, grandfathers. I bless you in this. Wonderful. Yeah, one of their grandfathers is an Anglican priest. One of their uncles is an Anglican priest. And their other uncle attends his brother's Anglican church. And so, I mean, that's the way we talk about it with them. This is a wound. It's a wound in the church. And even if the one true holy Catholic church is complete and is the plate uh, in some way, it's a broken plate. And it's nobody is unaffected by that. Well, and, and Ryan, I'm so glad. I hope this stays. Well, I mean, you don't have to keep this in, in the conversation because it's so good because you just gave me the, the image, right? It's that if you jump to one side of the wounded flesh and proclaim there's no wound, that's a problem. That can be a problem for a Protestant or a Catholic or an Orthodox Christian, right? But that Moravian sense of entering the wound, I want to live there. I want to live there. You know, I know I have, and I would, you know, I want to push the question back to you, but that's for a whole, we can, we can talk more. Again, you know, one answer is like, well, you know, it's like, oh, you really need to enter. Well, I'm baptized and confirmed Catholic, right? Both, you know, it's like in that sense, but it's the, it's the Moravian evangelical spirit that once blew amongst the Lenape that blew through me in the land of the Lenape that activated my faith. And they're the ones who want to enter into the wound, and that's where I want to enter too. And that lamentation, it's a wound. You're on one side of it. I'm on one side of it. We meet in that bloody center. And if that's gritty and medieval, so be it. The Moravians talk that way too. I should let you go. Hey, man, I really have enjoyed speaking with you. I have too. This has been a real blessing. Thank you. I'm glad you started a podcast. It's a lot of work. I know it. Oh, man. and you should listen to the most, uh, my most recent, no, not my most recent one, the one before that with Barbara Newman, because we really get into the heart stuff. And she sort of like in the conversation goes even beyond what she says in the permeable self book. Yeah, I saw that and literally book as soon as I was like preparing for this and I was like, what? So I trust me, it's, it's already downloaded. It's like okay, nice, and ready to go. Nice. She's wonderful. Yeah. yeah. Hey, thank okay. you, sir. All right. Have a great afternoon. Later on. We'll send this. Okay, thanks. Bye. Thanks for listening. If you appreciated this episode, please rate and review us on your podcast platform of choice. We love to hear from listeners. Chat with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. You can also learn more about our programming at beatriceinstitute.org. That's beatriceinstitute, all one word, dot org. And if you are a university student or faculty member in Pittsburgh and would like to be involved locally, 
Check out our Fellows program and get in touch. This episode was mixed and mastered by Yellow Music and Sound. Until next time, I'm Ryan McDermott. Go with God. Go with God.